Good morning. It is really fun to see this room pretty full again after a few weeks over the holidays. Good to see some of you back from travels and some of you, uh, Mathis and Caitlin are back for several months overseas. They're really mad at me now for saying their names, but it's wonderful to have them back uh, and, and to be together this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. You can be turning there. Uh, last week, if you were with us, you know that we started this sort of brief series, uh, so, sort of a vision series for 2024, and I'm not going to give you all the caveats that I gave you last week about what vision series does and doesn't mean. You can go back and listen to the sermon online if you missed it for all of that. Basically, we're asking, what do we want to emphasize in the year to come as a congregation? What do we feel like we need in order to grow, not numerically as a church, but to grow in grace, to grow in godliness, to grow together as a congregation, to grow in the way that we serve our community? And so last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and said what we need more than anything else is a vision of God in his glory, in his beauty. We need to see him and behold him and look at him and think about him and be changed as we do. And I, I encouraged you as we wrapped up last week, uh, to do this by reading scripture and to start a streak, which sounds so pragmatic. But I said, hey, what if we come back next week and we have a six-day streak of Bible reading? And maybe you do. I hope that you do. Maybe you're like me and your week did not go the way you expected it to. And so you can't walk in today this morning and, and say that you're building on a streak. But there's another opportunity this week to go back to God's word and continue not to do it to, to earn brownie points with God, but simply to see him and to behold him in his goodness and glory. This week, like I said, we're in John chapter 14. We'll be back in Galatians in a couple weeks if you're wondering why we didn't finish. Uh, but today we're talking about peace in an anxious world. And I want to I start by describing for you a few hypothetical scenarios. They may or may not feel so hypothetical, but, but they are. Uh, I want you to imagine that you're at a church in 2016 it's a healthy congregation, four or 500 people, so a good size. Uh, it's always been, you know, faithful Bible teaching, Bible believing church. But it's an election year, and things are a little tense. And you start to realize that some people in your congregation have political opinions that you didn't know about, and maybe stronger political opinions, and, and, and maybe they're less comfortable relating to people with different political opinions than they have, than you, than you realize. And over time, as you inch toward November you start to see little groups popping up in the church saying, I think that we need to denounce this candidate because of her views on X, or I think we need to denounce this candidate because of the way he speaks about X. And so people start to put pressure on the pastor and on the, the elders, the leaders of the congregation to say, hey, I think we need to talk about this more publicly. The pastors say, look, we're, we're not a partisan political church. We've never done that. We're not going to do that. But as time goes on, the intensity, the, the debate, the heat in the room continues to turn up and up until you get to the election. And after the fact, you start to see people leaving the church, people who just don't know how they can be in community with people who disagree with them about these things. And over the course of the next year or so, this four or 500 person church is half of what it used to be. And the pastor is so exhausted and burnt out that he's ready to give up. Second scenario, you're on a college campus in 2019, you're a student. It's a university that has a history of bringing in all kinds of speakers who represent different positions and opinions to come and give talks about things. And there's one particular speaker on the schedule that when the student body finds out about him, uh, get a little uncomfortable because he said some things that are, that are controversial to say the least. And so they start to express their concern. They start to post on social media and petitions start going around saying we should not let this person speak on our campus. 
president issues a statement. You know, we're, we, we value free speech and open inquiry. We, we want people of all kinds, even who have positions that we find objectionable, to come and speak on our campus. The day of the event comes, and 100 or so students are so upset that they form a blockade between the parking lot and the auditorium, and the speaker can't get in. And, and the news hits the, the local, uh, the, the, the event hits the local news, and the president issues another statement saying he's, he's upset with the actions of the students, and this is not the kind of, of community that we want to be. But a week or so later, he's gotten pressure from students and parents and the board, and he retracts his statement and says, I'm going to take a, a leave of absence to be quiet and learn for a while. It's 2020, and you're coming up on the first holiday season with the word COVID in your vocabulary. And you have a big family. You've always loved getting together, cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. But this year, during the holidays, you're not even sure if you're going to be able to go home and get together because people in your family are so divided over COVID precautions. And it's, it's lumped in all other sorts of things. And so now, like, you've got cousins who won't even talk to each other. You've got siblings who are at each other's throats. And you're thinking, it may not even be worth going home for the holidays. Final scenario, it's, it's January 2024. And you spend most of your days with this just gnawing feeling in your gut that there's something off and you're not quite sure what it is. And so the best, least destructive thing that you can think to do to sort of numb that feeling is to spend more and more time scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. All of these, which maybe you can resonate with one or more of them, all of these are examples of anxiety, but not just any kind of anxiety, a specific kind of anxiety. Murray Bowen, who was a, a 20th century uh, psychiatrist. He's a, a pioneer of family counseling. He divided anxiety into two categories, acute and chronic. Acute anxiety, he said, is, is a response to an immediate danger, right? You look out your window and there's a lion outside your, your front door and you think, I'm not going to go outside because I don't want to get eaten. That's, a, that's good, uh, acute anxiety. But, but there's also what he calls chronic anxiety, which is a response to a potential danger, right? There, there might be a lion outside, I don't see one. I really have no reason to think there is one, but there might be a lion outside, so I'm going to stay inside because I'm worried that there might be a lion outside. Bowen, who was actually uh, born just in Waverly, Tennessee, up the road, his, his unique contribution to this was to say that chronic anxiety is typically spread through relationships, through systems, in particular through family systems, but we could also say it's spread through congregations, it's spread through institutions, through schools. It's spread increasingly through all of Western society via social media. And in our day, in our moment, this has become so prevalent, the spread of chronic anxiety, that many have called our day the age of anxiety. It is the defining characteristic of life post-2015 or so. A question for us is how do we minister in the age of anxiety? What, what does the gospel say to this? Does Jesus, does the Bible have a word for people grappling with this anxiety? Missiologists, or people who study missions, uh, who are also by definition sort of experts in like cultural anthropology, they study people groups and things like this, they've long divided the world into three groups when thinking about how the gospel is most effectively preached to particular people. So, for example, the global south, so think of Africa and South America, uh, they call a fear-power culture. The, the great existential need, of, a felt need of people in the global south is fear. 
because they live in a, in a world with, they, like they still have an enchanted worldview, which the West uh, lost, sadly, a long time ago. And they view the world in such a way that there's spirits, there's demons, there's angels, there's gods, there's ancestors everywhere. And they're actually playing an active role in our lives. And they might do things to make my life better or worse. And so I need a god or gods that are more powerful than the ones who might want to harm me. And so when the gospel is preached to people in the global south, it needs to be preached in such a way that shows that Christ, through his death on the cross, has achieved victory over these other beings, these other spiritual forces. He's more powerful than they are. In the East, uh, the East has been called a shame and honor culture. So the great existential felt need is to, to feel being in a position of honor and not to, to have shame brought upon you or on your family or on your community. And the great fear is that I might bring shame or disrepute upon my family or community and as a result be cast out. And so when the gospel is preached, it needs to be preached in such a way that shows that on the cross, Christ, this is why, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking at least, symbolically speaking, this is why he's crucified naked. Because it's a picture of shame everywhere in the Bible. On the cross, we need to hear that, that Christ took our shame upon himself so that we could be brought back into the position of honor. In the West, Europe and Canada, the United States, uh, it's been labeled a guilt-innocence culture. And this makes sense right of the way that, that most of us, if we grew up in church, we heard the gospel preached in one way, that you are guilty, sinful before a holy God, and you need somebody to remove your guilt and make you innocent again. And that's what Christ did. He goes to the cross to die for our sins so that through faith we can be made innocent. Now, all of these three approaches are true and biblical. They're different facets of the, the gospel diamond, and we need all of them to have a full-orbed understanding of the good news. But where am I going with this? I've had a suspicion for a long time now that the West is changing and that it's no longer primarily a guilt and innocence culture, but an anxiety and peace culture. And that the, the greatest existential felt need, at least of like Gen X and younger, uh, is not guilt. What do I do with my guilt? In fact, we often celebrate the idea that we don't have anything to feel guilty about. But the great existential felt need is, what do I do with this feeling of anxiety? I can't figure out why it's there. I can't figure out what's causing it. I need somebody to take it away from me. Does Jesus have anything to say to this? I believe he does. I think what he says, which we're going to see, is I give you peace. John 14, we're just going to read one verse today, verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. This is the word of the Lord. Three points this morning. First, the peace Christ gives. Second, the peace the world gives. And third, the peace that we give. So first, the peace that Christ gives. Again, we need a little bit of context. Like last week in Isaiah, we just parachuted into chapter 6. We're not working our way through the book. In John, we're not working our way through the book. So what's the context? John uh, is one of the four Gospels. It's sort of a spiritual biography of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And in chapter 14 and the, the chapter surrounding, Jesus is kind of having his last long conversation with his disciples before he dies and is resurrected and ascends back to heaven. And so he's telling them, I'm going to leave you. I've been with you for three years. You've oriented your entire lives around me, but I'm going to be gone. I'm going to leave you. And understandably, this causes them to feel a little bit of anxiety. They start asking questions like, where are you going? And we don't know how to get to where you're going. And what are we going to do without you? 
And it's into this environment that he says, peace, I leave you. That's it. It's inheritance language. He's saying, I'm going away and I'm going to leave you this inheritance of peace. And he says, my peace I give to you. So this is a gift. It's not something that we earned, but it's something that is given. Now, there's two kinds of peace. There's first sort of objective and external peace, right? This is the kind of peace that like you know it when you see it. It's, it's peace uh, as opposed to hostility or wartime. And I was thinking about this. Um, it's, I'm sure that it's not as simple as two nations are either at war or at peace. And there's a couple experts on those sorts of things in the room. I'm sure it's more nuanced than that. But in general, you know if people are fighting or if they're not. You know if nations are fighting or if they're not. So there's this objective external peace that is the absence of hostility. But biblically, as, as we heard Luke read to us this morning, there, it's more than just the absence of something. It's a presence of something. Uh, I, was, I went to Lipscomb University in town, and um, Lipscomb is a Christian school that comes from the Churches of Christ tradition, which I was not very familiar with when I got there. And the first day of chapel, uh, the, the song leader gets up, and it, if you know anything about Churches of Christ, you probably know that they generally don't use instruments in their worship. They sing a cappella. And so the song leader gets up, and he has his little microphone, and he starts singing a song that I've never heard in my life. And about 70% of the student body starts singing out in four-part harmony. And the, my first thought was, have I gotten myself into some sort of cult? But my second thought, as it continued to wash over me, was this is actually really beautiful. These kids who grew up in these churches learn to harmonize, which I have no hope of ever learning to do. And they sing together, and it's, it's beautiful. All these different parts working together to create something that really is, is better and more beautiful than just the sum of its parts. This is kind of a picture of the Bible's idea of peace. Uh, it's the Hebrew word that everybody knows, shalom. It means something like harmony or completeness or wholeness or, or well-being. It comes from a, a root that means to be complete or to be sound. Again, this is the state of the world at creation. God speaks and creation comes into existence. Everything is responding immediately to his command. And, and it's so beautifully ordered, right? There's day and there's night, there's land and there's sea, there's man and there's woman. And God creates them all and there's this sort of chain of command that there's God and then there's humanity, which is created in his image to have authority over the created world. And all these relationships are fitting together perfectly and beautiful, beautifully until... Humanity turns away from God and his love and his life and his fullness, and they turn in on themselves to submit to their own desires rather than to God, and it breaks everything. This harmony, this shalom is just shattered. It's broken. And this, the Bible tells us, is what Jesus came to restore, to, to fit the pieces back together, to, to restore our broken relationship with one another, to restore our broken relationship with the created world, to restore our sort of, if we can speak this way, relationship with ourselves, although I don't really love that language, but you understand what I mean by it. But most importantly, Jesus came to give us peace again with God. Now, how does he do it? He does it through the cross. And you might think to yourself, that's odd. That's a rather violent way to bring about the end of violence. <laughs> it's a rather violent and jarring way to bring about, the end, uh, to bring about peace. Why, why was this the way that God did this? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Because it's the only way of dealing with the mutual hostility that exists between us and God. Now you're thinking, did he just say mutual hostility? Yes, I did. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world 
According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Paul is saying that we come into the world hating God. We come into the world submitting to our own fleshly, impulsive desires, obeying them rather than obeying God. And as a result, he says, we are under God's wrath when we live in this world. But the very next verse, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive together with Christ. Paul is saying that we are under God's wrath and that God loves us. How can you be under wrath and in love at the same time? Um, have a kid and you'll find out how that works. Right? There are moments when your, your kids are acting selfishly and they're, they're being hurtful to other people and you're angry at them because of the way that they're behaving and yet you love them. So you're, you're working with them to, to, to help them because you love them even while you're wrathful about the way that they are behaving. This is how God views his children. He is both for us and against us. He is against us in our sin, yet he is for our redemption. You might say that he is for us, but he is against the sin in us. And he must be, right? He wouldn't be just otherwise. He wouldn't be good otherwise. And yet, even while he is wrathful against our sin, he loves us. And so what did he do? He sent his son to swallow up the enmity between us and God by going to the cross and drinking dry the cup of God's wrath against human sin. In Christ, in other words, God took on human nature and he bore his own wrath against sin so that you and I would not have to. And it doesn't stop there. This doesn't just reconcile us with God. Through the cross, Christ not only removes the enmity between us and God, but between us and everyone else who is reconciled to God. Again, that's the text that Luke just read us. He is our peace, Ephesians 2 says, who made both groups one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but we can apply that to all of humanity. He made both groups one by, uh, by tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. I was reading um, during Advent the book by the church father Athanasius called On the Incarnation, which I recommend for Advent reading. And there's a part at the end of it where he, he's giving all the proofs of the truth of the gospel and the, the, the lordship of Christ. And he talks about different tribes and different communities and different nations who were at war with one another forever, laying down their arms when the gospel reached them. He said, when, when else have you ever seen two groups who hated each other come together other than when Christ came? And it should be, sadly, it's often not, but it should be the same in our day that, that, that a powerful proof of the gospel would be that groups and people who hated one another are now coming together through Christ. The gospel is the good news that Jesus drank dry the cup of God's wrath and his enmity against human sin so that we could be reconciled to God and to everyone else who is reconciled to God. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, this, this peace with God and others is objectively true of you whether you feel it or not. Whether you feel at peace or not, this is, this is true. But there's a second kind of peace here. It's, it's a subjective peace. It's internal. It's experiential. Look at the end of the verse with me. <clears throat> Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. Now, when we come to the Bible in our day, we tend to caveat these statements to death. 
because we're so aware, we have this heightened awareness of, of mental health challenges and anxiety and depression, and we don't want anybody to feel guilty for those things, and rightly so. So these, these passages do deserve some caveats. Internal peace and, and sort of a tranquility of heart is going to be harder in this life for some people to come by than others because of your experiences, because of just your, your makeup, because of things that have happened to you. So it is, it is harder for some people than others. But at the same time, it is undeniably true that the Bible promises a change in the internal and emotional life of God's people. It's undeniably true. Jesus promises this over and over again. Now, to be clear, the Bible does not promise peaceful circumstances. In fact, two chapters later, same conversation, Jesus says, I'm telling you all this so that in me you have peace. He says, in the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to suffer. You're going to have very unpeaceful circumstances, but be courageous because I have conquered the world. Internal, subjective, experiential peace is not about being in a world with no challenges. It's about being in Christ in a world with challenges. I was reminded of this this week. I came home, I think Monday, and it was time to start cooking dinner and to eat dinner, and uh, we realized that there, there was water on our kitchen floor, and uh, we poked around and realized there was a leak in the back of the fridge. Our fridge is about 30 years old, at least, uh, but my mind, of course, immediately goes to, oh no, like, how much is it going to cost to buy a new fridge? How long has this leak been happening? Is there damage? Did it go through the floors? Is it in the basement? Are we going to have to pull up the kitchen floor? Like, what is this going to cost us? What is it going to do to us? And I get immediately stressed out, and I step out into my study for a minute, and I'm praying and asking the Lord for help, saying, Lydia's going to ask me a thousand questions about this. This is not her fault. This is not Lindsay's fault. This is nobody's fault. Don't snap at anybody. Don't get mad at anybody. And, and, Frankly, I probably did about a C-plus job. I probably did better than I would have a couple years ago, but Lord willing, not as well as I would do in a couple years. The point is, I'm not very good yet at, at making use of the resources for this internal peace, but that doesn't mean the resources aren't there. And what is the resource primarily? It's the Holy Spirit. Back to verse 26, just up ahead of where we read. Jesus says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Trinity. Christians believe the, the bedrock foundational belief that we have that makes Christianity unique from every other world religion is that we believe that God is a Trinity, which means that he's three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The, the, the Son is Jesus. He, he becomes incarnate, takes on human flesh, and as he's going back to the Father, he says, the Father is going to send you in my name the Holy Spirit, the Counselor. God sent his Son into the world to go to the cross to purchase our objective peace, but then he sends his Spirit into our lives to give us the experience of that peace. Now, the mistake that I think some Christians can sometimes make at this point is to just move on and say, we're good. You've got the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you the experience of peace, so stop worrying. Come on, you've got the Spirit. Stop. What are you so worried about? Stop being so anxious. Why are you fearful? Why are you afraid? Stop. Just stop. That's not helpful, is it? The more somebody tells you to stop being anxious, probably the more anxious you get. So the reality is, even as God sends us his Spirit to have the experience of this peace, we have to work in the power of the Holy Spirit, to experience what is ours by the Holy Spirit. How does, how does this work? How do we work together with the Spirit to experience this kind of peace? First, through prayer. Philippians 4, 6, a famous verse in the Bible, it says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, 
through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Notice what Paul says. He says, don't do this, but do that instead. He gives you something else to do besides worrying. So when you start to worry, when you start to feel anxious, the picture that Paul gives us is just immediately go to prayer. Start talking to God. Tell him what you're worried about. Tell him what you're anxious about. Tell him what you're fearful about. And he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. We do this through prayer. We do it through thinking, through actively engaging our thoughts and our minds. Philippians 4.8, just two verses later, says, Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, any moral excellence, anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Do you know what catastrophizing is? This is a word that entered my vocabulary a couple years ago, and I find it very helpful. Um, it, catastrophizing is basically what I did with the fridge. It's when you, it's when you get like, two years down the road in your thoughts, assuming that the worst possible result of every single fork in the road is going to happen. So like you wake up late for work on a day that, that you have a meeting, right? It's, you have a nine o'clock meeting and you wake up at eight o'clock and it's a big meeting and, and you, your mind immediately goes to, I'm either going to be late or I'm going to go without showering, without brushing my teeth. Either way, my boss is going to be mad at me. He's going to talk to me afterwards. He probably already doesn't like me. So he's probably going to fire me. And then I don't have any very marketable skill sets. So I'm probably not going to be able to get a job. And then I'm not going to be able to live in Nashville anymore. So I'm going to have to go home and live with my parents back in wherever. This, that's catastrophizing. And the Bible says, don't do that. Take your thoughts captive and think about what is true. Think about what is good. Think about what is, what is beautiful and lovely and pure and excellent. Set your minds on things above where you are seated with Christ. And if you have to do that, if you need a minute to catastrophize, play it out to the end and ask, you know what, what would be true even if all this did happen? I would still be in Christ who promises to give me everything that I need. Back to John 14, 26, what will the counselor do when he comes? He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. The spirit comes into our hearts and he says, look up, look to Christ, preach the gospel to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself, but talk back to yourself. Third way that the Spirit helps us in this is through intercession. Romans 8 tells us that when we're praying and we don't have the words, like we, we can't even begin to form the sentences and pray for what we, what we think we need to pray for, that the Holy Spirit is actually praying for us, that he's interceding for us. The Holy Spirit, who is God, who knows fully the mind of God and knows fully the mind of Taylor, is praying for Taylor when I don't know how to pray for myself. And he must minister to us in a thousand ways every day that we are utterly unaware of. And what I'm saying, what I think the Bible is inviting us to, is that we have the opportunity of just becoming more in touch and in tune with the Spirit so that those unknown ways that he ministers to us start to become known. And we know it and we can thank him for it and live in the peace that it brings. What happens when we receive the peace-giving work of Christ on the cross by faith, and when the Spirit over time works on our hearts to bring the experience of peace, you become a person and we become a community that is solid and sturdy and stable and unflappable in a world that is not those things, <laughs> in a world that, that is chaotic and anxious. Now, Jesus contrasts this offer of peace with worldly offers of peace. Point two, I promise you the next two points won't be 20 minutes. Um, 
Jesus says, look, I, I, I don't give peace to you the way that the world does. Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus understood well that people will come promising empty solutions for peace. Some of them well-meaning, to be sure. Others of them just hucksters, right, hawking peace to line their pockets. And this is still true in our day. What is, what is the peace that the world gives? What are things that promise peace in our day? Certainly money would be at the top of the list, right? Um, if, if I just made twice as much as what I make now, I could afford all these things that would make my life so much more peaceful. And we, if, if you still believe that, really, God bless you. <laughs> because we see that it doesn't work, does it? That was the most Southern thing I've ever said from the pulpit. God bless you. Bless your hearts. Uh, what else do we look to? We look to control. We think that if we could control our lives and control other people and control what they say and what they do in certain environments that we would be able to have peace. We look to politics and we think if this guy gets in office, then things are going to be good. If that guy gets in office, we're toast. We look to religion, by which I mean working hard to earn God's favor. And we think if I can be good enough and do good enough to make God happy with me, then he'll, he'll reward me with a peaceful life. We look to just plain old hard work. If I just work harder than everybody else, uh, then I'll have a peaceful rest of my life. We, we are told now that if you want to have peace, you need to cut the toxic people out of your life. And I would just say, do that enough, and you might wake up one day and realize that you're the toxic person who needed to be cut out of everybody else's life. In the end, all these solutions don't work. Money just makes life more complicated. You can't control almost anything politicians fail, religion burns you out, hard work doesn't pay off, and toxic people will always wiggle their way back into your life. The peace that the world promises doesn't work. It's not, it's not peace. But it's into this, it's into this world of chronic anxiety on the one hand and empty solutions on the other that we, as people who have been transformed by the peace of Christ, get to bring the peace of Christ to others. And I simply want to close with, with asking what if King's Cross, while our neighbors are floundering and looking to alleviate their anxiety and their angst with all these empty solutions, money and elections and morality and hard work, or, or just giving up and trying to numb those feelings, right, with pleasure or with endless hours of screen time, what if they came here and they experienced a community that had been transformed by the peace of Christ? Or what if over your dinner table or across the, the table at your favorite coffee shop or on a walk at Shelby Park, they realized this is a person who is profoundly settled and doesn't seem to be put off by all the off-putting things about me, doesn't seem to be bothered by me, doesn't seem to be scared by me, but is simply relationally and emotionally hospitable and sturdy and stable. And to be clear, you're thinking to yourself, that could never be me. It It could. <laughs> It could become you over time. What if, what if somebody who is in this state came to your discipleship group and it was the, the first and only spiritual environment that they've ever been in where they felt like they could just exhale? Where they felt like they could breathe and they didn't have to perform and they didn't have to pretend that they were somebody they weren't and they could just be open about who they are and where they are and they felt loved and welcomed and, and like they, they had found something stable Back to Murray Bowen, the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, he coined a phrase, non-anxious presence. And I learned this term through a book by Australian pastor Mark Sayers titled Non-Anxious Presence. Um, I, I am more and more convinced that we have a uniquely 
powerful and poignant evangelistic opportunity with our neighbors this year and in the year to come, it, years to come if we can embody this concept of a non-anxious presence. To be clear, this doesn't mean you're never worried about anything. This doesn't mean you're never fearful or anxious about anything. But it means over time, we become changed by the Holy Spirit. If we can become the kind of people who are so quietly confident in the gospel and so intimately connected with God through the Holy Spirit, so quick to take our worries and anxieties to him in prayer and to let him minister back to us by reminding us of the gospel, reminding us of what's true, I, I can't promise that like people will flock here. Sometimes people say that. If your church could become like X, people will just flood your church and, and they'll be flocking there left and right. But what I can promise is that as hurting lonely, isolated, anxious people encounter us, they will find a wide and spacious hospitality room inside this community and inside your heart, and they will feel it, and they'll know it. And we can pray that in that space, they might meet the reason for that non-anxious presence.